Matthew chapter 5, uh, reading from verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds and went upon a mountainside and sat, he went upon a mountainside and sat down. <coughs> His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, the last few times that I've been preaching, we've been looking at this passage in Matthew's Gospel. It's called the Beatitudes, um, uh, and it's uh, the start of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. And we've gotten through each one in turn, and we're now up to verse 8, which is this one. And it's what we're going to focus on today. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You've probably heard the story of the uh, reception teacher who uh, was walking around, her pupils were drawing, and uh, she came up to one girl who was drawing very intently and uh, concentrating very hard on it, and the teacher said, well, what is it that you're drawing? And she said, um, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, well, no one knows what God looks like, at which point she looked up and said, well, they will in a minute, won't they? The Bible tells us, in quite a few places, that no one has ever seen God. One of those places is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12, if you want to look that up later. The Bible tells us in quite a few places, though, that no one has ever seen God. In fact, you sometimes hear people, don't you, um, who aren't believers, who say, well, you know, if I saw God, then I would believe in him. And uh, ironically, the Bible tells us the opposite. It says, if you believe in him and trust in him, then you will see him. Um, it's the other way around. The closest anyone in the Bible came to seeing God, and seeing God's face, um, there's two people probably who saw God pass by, were Moses in Exodus 33, and Elijah in 1 Kings 19. But neither of them were able to see the face of God. Um, and, and God explains why in Exodus 33. He says uh, in Exodus 33 and 20, in verse 20, he says, uh, from verse 19, he says, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, uh, in your presence. I will have mercy on who I have mercy. I have compassion on who I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. No one can see the face of God and live, God says in Exodus 33. It sounds a bit like one of those um, spy films, doesn't it, where you get a secret agent or someone like that, and he says to someone, look, if I reveal who I am, then I'm going to have to kill you, um, because it's a secret. Now, it's not like that at all with God. That's not, that's not why God doesn't show his face to people and says, no one can see me and live. There's a reason why you cannot see God without dying, and it's to do with holiness and purity. And that's why it says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, God is pure and holy. God is absolutely pure and is holy. The word holy means separate 
totally set apart from us. Now, he's actually separate from us in a number of different ways. For example, um, he doesn't need anything. There's nothing that you can add to God to, to make him better. Whereas with us, we all need other things. Um, he's totally separate from, from us in that. We can't add anything to God to make him better. But one of the main ways in which he's separate and holy is that he is completely perfect and pure. And obviously we are not. Because God is completely pure and holy, he can't relate in a, in a full and total way to anyone who is impure or sinful. Because he's got a life that can't be stained or made impure by anything that is bad. In fact, the closer we get to God, the more we become aware of our own sinfulness, of our own impurity. That's historically been seen um, in times of revival. Um, when God draws closer to us by his presence, that God's always here. God's here in this room now. He's close to us. But there's been times when, in history where God has drawn closer to people. His presence is more tangible. And at those times, what has happened in people is they've been suddenly aware of their sin and their lack of holiness. Uh, Isaiah saw it, didn't he, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. When he came into the presence of God, he, he came into the temple and he, he saw God and there was the seraphim and the crying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's response to that, and bear in mind, he was a prophet of God speaking on God's behalf. Isaiah's response was he fell down to his face and he said, woe to me, I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. He was speaking on behalf of God. But he recognized, oh man, my sinfulness, my impurity. The closer we get to God, the more we become aware of our impurity and sinfulness. And we cannot see God face to face in that state and live. Yet here in these Beatitudes, we see Jesus talking about how the pure in heart are those who will see God. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? Let's have a little bit of a look in more detail at that. Now when Jesus is talking about our hearts, being people's hearts... He's, he's not just talking about emotions. Often today, we'll talk about the head and the heart, won't we? And we'll say, oh yeah, I, I've got to make a decision. Do I go with my head, what, what my head is saying, or do I go with what my heart is saying? In other words, do I go with what makes sense, what seems, you know, logical, or do I go with my emotions, how I'm feeling about something? Well, that's, that's not what Jesus was talking about. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about our hearts, it doesn't talk, it's not meaning our emotions. It's talking about the entire, uh, of our, the entire personality, the whole of our being. Um, Philip Greenslade, who's a writer, calls it the control and command center of our lives. That's what the heart is, the control and command center of our lives. And Jesus is drawing attention to what is going on in people's hearts because he's contrasting it with the Pharisees of the day, you know, these religious leaders who, um, who were going around and were often critical of Jesus. And they were concerned about the outward appearance. He, he talks um, about this in a number of places. Let's have a look at Matthew 23. That's one of them. He's talking to the Pharisees. Matthew 23 and verse 25. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, 
But inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. He's not actually talking about cups, and he's not talking about them washing up. He's talking about themselves. You look good on the outside, but inside, there's greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is is talking to the Pharisees there, and he's saying, you might look good, you might look impressive, you might look spiritual, you might have got all the right things to say, you might have got the theology sorted, you've studied the law, he said, but what is going on inside? It looks good on the outside, but inside, it's like dead bodies, rotting corpses. It's disgusting. He's cutting through the outward appearance and saying, what is going on in the heart? You know, we're well aware that our society has got problems, aren't we? We can look at our society and we can say there's crime, there's violence, there's addiction, there's war, there's all sorts of things going on in our societies. What are we going to do about it? And governments each successively try to do something about it to deal with the issues. But they look to deal with it by changing the external factors. They look to deal with it by changing the outside. What things look like. So they might give people better housing or better health care. Or say, well, if we give them better education, it will really help in this way. But the problems still remain. You can see it by near where we live, the local park. In Shirecliff, uh, a lot of money was spent on doing up the park, regenerating it. They said there's been a lot of problems with youth uh, crime and violence and, you know, uh, lo- uh, antisocial behavior. The park needs doing up. It's a mess. There's nowhere to go. And so they did the park up, put a lot of expensive new equipment in it, built a whole football pitch, turfed it all. Within a, a couple of days, someone had come and stolen all the t- new turf off the football pitch. All the equipment was vandalized very, very quickly. And it looks a mess again. Why? Because doing a park-up doesn't deal with the problem. Because the problem is in people's hearts. The externals, you can make things look good on the outside. And we can make things look good on the outside of our lives as well. We can look good in front of people. We can look spiritual. We can look as though we've got our life sorted. But what's going on on the inside? Jesus says, we might be like whitewashed tombs. We look good on the outside, but inside, there's a lot of rotten corpses. Jesus isn't interested in outward appearance. He's not concerned with how we look. He's not concerned (coughs) with how clever we are, or how skillful we are, or how talented, or what gifts we've got. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 highlights this as well. This is where um, Samuel is uh, choosing the next king, anointing the next king, and uh, he eventually anoints David, who is the youngest of the brothers. He's even out in the field. Um, And uh, 1 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his height. This is an older brother than David. For I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, 
But the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. This is an older brother than David. For I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel's looking at this, at this brother, I think it's Eliab, and he's, and he's saying, oh, he must be the next king because he, he looks the stuff. He looks impressive. God's saying, no, don't look at those things. Don't, don't get fooled by what someone looks like, comes across like, how well they present themselves, how articulate they are, how strong they are. Don't get fooled by all that because I'm not looking at the outside. I'm looking at the heart. So we can understand Christian doctrines and we can, get a lo- we can think, oh yes, I really got a lot out of that message that was preached the other week. Well, that's, that's important, but that's not what Christianity is about. We can come to meetings, we can pray in tongues, we can prophesy, we can sing out in meetings in English or in the spirit, we can come to the prayer meeting, we can fast, we can serve the poor, we can fight injustice, stand up on behalf of, of those who are oppressed, we can witness and tell other people about Jesus, we can give gifts to God and to others, we can show hospitality to people, we can lead projects, we can serve at New Day, we can go along to New Day and respond at New Day and go forward in the meetings. There's any number of things that we can do, but God says, I do not care about those things. Because what I'm concerned about is your heart. What is going on in your heart? Let's not be fooled if we do any of those things that we've earned some sort of favor with God. That God's going to look on us and say, oh, you know, they've gone up in my estimation. We, we don't. We don't. If you've gone forward at New Day, great if God's doing something in your life. But if your heart's not changing, and if God's not doing something in you, it's not worth a great deal. Because God's concerned about our heart. And the good news is it's not all about us, and we'll come to that in a minute. But let's not get fooled. God is concerned by the state of our hearts. The Pharisees looked at others critically and judgmentally. But Jesus was saying, look at your own heart. So we can ask some questions to ourselves. Here's some questions we could ask ourselves. Just a few, just seven. Are you angry with anyone at the moment? Have you got something against someone, something in your heart against someone? Do you look lustfully at others? Or do you covet things that they have, want things that they have? What sort of things do you think about when you are relaxing? What sort of things do you find funny? What do you read or watch for entertainment? What do you love? If you answered all of those questions, do you think that those answers would show that you are pure in heart? Would you be able to line yourself up with what Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God? As we hear Just those questions and think about them. And just a relatively short list there, we can quickly realize we fall short. We fall woefully short. Because none of us can look at that list and say we come out well. None of us could say we are, we've got all that sorted. Because it's what's going on in our hearts. Proverbs 20 and verse 19 
asks the question. Um, No, verse 9. Proverbs 20 and verse 9 says, Who can say, I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Who can say, I've kept my heart pure, I'm clean and without sin? He leaves it as a rhetorical question. He doesn't answer it. But of course, the answer is no one. No one can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin. Jesus' followers realized something similar in Luke 18 when Jesus talked about how difficult it was to, um, to get into the kingdom of heaven that he was pointing out if you were rich. He was saying it's, it's harder for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He was just choosing that example of people who were rich. He could have chosen any number of other examples. And, uh, and his, his disciples said, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? He, they knew when it comes down to their goodness, our goodness and holiness, the standard that God has set of purity, that we fall short. We always fall short. And Jesus answers in Luke 18, verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. What did he mean by that? He meant it's only God himself who can bring about that purity of heart in us that means we can see God. We're not going to be able to do it ourselves. He doesn't want us just to get depressed about it. God's not saying all these things so we go away and just think, oh, great. Well, we failed then. Well, I wish I hadn't bothered turning up this morning. He's wanting us to be cast on him. To just stop making all the effort ourselves independently of him. We need him. We need some heart surgery. You see, becoming a Christian, it's not just about agreeing to some statements about God. We can hear statements about God. I mean, we've, 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 many times I've said myself, you know, the four most important things in the world. God loves me. I have sinned. Jesus died for me. I need to decide to live for God. But it's not about our effort. It's not just about believing those things. Oh, yeah. I believe Jesus, God loves me. Oh, I believe. I believe that I've sinned, yeah. I believe Jesus died for me. It's not just about intellectually assenting to it and going, well, that's all right then. I believe it. It's about giving ourselves over to God and letting him deal with the issues that are in our heart. We need heart surgery from the great physician. And that means giving ourselves over completely to him because we need him to purify our hearts. David prays, In Psalm 51 and verse 9 and 10, he prays. This is after he was caught in sin. And he's confessing his sin. And he says, Hide your face from my sins and block out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. He knows. He's the king. He was the one who, the man who was after his, God's own heart. You know, he was the one who God looked at and saw what his heart was like and chose him. So his heart was better than others. 
But he knew that he wasn't pure. He came to realize that he sinned against God and against Bathsheba and against her husband. And he came to God and he said, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He couldn't do it himself. He was the king, but he couldn't do it himself. We're not trying to get some sort of recognition by God by how we do. Or even by taking ourselves out of the world like some people do and separating ourselves and saying we're not going to be corrupted by the world. Because it, we, the world can affect us, definitely. But it's our hearts. And if our hearts haven't changed, it will still affect us. We can't perform heart surgery on ourselves. Even if you're a heart surgeon, you can't perform heart surgery on yourself. You need to give yourself completely over to God. You can't say, oh, it'll be all right. I'm I'm working hard at becoming a better person. Because inside, your heart will still be impure. It's not about breaking a few bad habits. Oh, I've got these things which are bad habits, you know. Oh, I, I just can't stop smoking. Or whatever it might be. Oh, I'm going to really work hard. Oh, great, I've cracked it. I've cracked it. I'm a better person now. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because your heart is still impure. Don't be fooled into thinking it's about breaking a few habits which maybe other people can see. And they might judge you. Oh, you shouldn't be smoking. Oh, it's bad for your health, you know. Oh, I'll stop doing that. And then people will think I'm all right. Maybe they will. But you're not. Because God sees your heart. 1 John puts it simply. 1 John 1 and verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if we confess our sinfulness, if we confess our (coughs) absolute dependence on God, if we realize that we can receive a cleansing of our hearts and forgiveness of our sins, because of the death that Jesus died, because he was pure and lived a pure, holy life, and yet died and was punished for our, in our place, punished for us, our punishment was taken on board by him. If we believe that and confess it, then God will forgive us, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. James 4 verse 8 says similarly, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Interesting that James calls people double-minded because so often we can think, well, we want God in our lives, but actually we still want things of the world. And so we, we, we want both. We want to have our cake and eat it, I guess you could say. James is saying, no, don't be double-minded. Come near to God. Draw near to God and draw near to you. Jesus says in Matthew 22 and verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. Give yourselves fully to God. Allow him to come and cleanse you. Allow him to change your hearts. And then they will be pure. Not because you've made them better, but because God has cleansed them. You can come and you can see God. Once we've confessed our impurity and need of heart surgery, he will cleanse us. We'll be pure before him. And the promise is we'll see God. We will see God. On that day when Jesus returns and we live and reign with him, we will see God. 
We will be known by him fully. We will know him. So, is that it then? Is that the message of today? Well, that's an important message today and one I hope we all can get hold of. But that isn't it. That isn't all that Jesus was meaning because once we've been purified, does that mean we're sorted? Does that mean we don't need to worry about it again? Does that mean we can live how we want? And in the end, we'll see God. Great, our hearts have been made pure. Fantastic. Let's get on with life. Let's enjoy doing the things we always did. And then we'll see God. I don't think that's the case. Being purified is a once-for-all event when we are forgiven by God and when we're saved. But it's also an ongoing process. And that process will come to completion by the time that we meet God. You see, when we meet God and reign with him in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sin. So we won't sin. And we will be pure. And we'll see God because of the cleansing which comes from Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. But right now, if we've been cleansed and forgiven, we have power not to sin. Because as Arnold explained the other week, sin is no longer our master. In fact, our desire changes our desire is, becomes that we don't sin, and we don't want to sin. Um, John writes his letter, the first letter, 1 John and chapter 3, and verse 3, and he says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope in him, hope in God, in Jesus, purifies himself, Just as he is pure. You think, well, hang on, what does that mean? Purifies himself. I thought we just said, you can't purify yourself. You can't make yourself better. It's all God who can do it. So why is John now saying, everyone who's got this hope in him purifies himself? It's because we are not just passive in this whole thing. If we know, because the power of sin is broken in our lives. If we know that we are on the road to heaven, where we'll see God the king who is pure and who will not admit any impurity close to him, then we will surely have as a concern our own purity, how we live our lives. We will make every effort to be pure because we know that we've got God's spirit helping us and we've been freed from the slavery that we had to sin before where we couldn't do anything about it. But now God set us free from that. And we have Jesus as an example in how to live our lives. Because Hebrews 4 and verse 15 tells us that Jesus identified with what we were going through. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest, we have Jesus, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he's been tempted in every way. You see, he was born as a man, and he was tempted in every way as well, in the same way that we are. Now, at this point, you might protest. You might say, hang on a minute. You say Jesus can identify with us because he was tempted in every way, but surely Jesus is God. And God 
cannot sin. So what does that mean? Jesus was tempted in every way because he was fully man. But because he was God, he couldn't sin anyway. So it's like, well, yeah, he was tempted. But he couldn't sin. So how can we can sin? We don't have to sin, but we can. That can be a problem for us. Maybe you've never thought about that before and it's just become a problem for you. <laughs> it can be a problem for us. Excuse me. This is where this book came in helpful. <laughs> I was battling with that one before then. <laughs> Jesus didn't resist the temptations that were thrown at him that he faced because he was God. He resisted because as a man and empowered by the Spirit and filled with God's word, he did everything that was given to him by his Father. He used that to remain obedient. He didn't just supernaturally go, I'm tempted in every way. You know, it's not, it's not like some sort of Clark Kent Superman thing. I'm tempted, I'm really, I'm really weak. But I'm also God, so I don't have to sin. He didn't do that. It's not like suddenly going from one thing to another. No, he just didn't, he didn't use the fact that he was God in order to resist. He used the things that God had given him, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, to remain obedient. So this, this guy, Bruce Ware, gives an illustration of this. Bear with me on this illustration. Okay, he gives an illustration of someone who is, who is going to try and break the swimming long-distance record. Someone who wants to swim the furthest that anyone has ever swum before across the channel. And so they're crossing the sea. And this guy goes into training for it. And he's, got, you know, he's really working hard and he's really disciplining himself and, and training himself for this long-distance swim. He knows it's going to be hard work. But he knows there's going to be a great reward at the end. He's going to get the medal. And, and as, he, as he's been training, he does maybe... You know, maybe it's a 70 miles he's got to swim, but he does 30, 40 miles, and he starts to realize, oh, I, you know, I'm struggling a bit, and I, I'm, I'm a bit worried that I'm going to get cramp. And if I get cramp, then I, then I won't be able to swim anymore, and I'm going to drown. And so he's a bit concerned about this. So he talks to the people who are helping him train, and they say, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll have a boat, and we'll have this boat that is, is following you, not near enough to get in your way, um, and not, not near to stop you swimming, but we'll follow you. And if you get into trouble, we'll, we'll rescue you. And so he, they say, okay, right, we'll do that. And so this guy does the swim. And he's swimming, and he, and he gets there. He does the 70-mile swim, and he gets the new record. Now, if you asked him the question, how, why is it that he could not have drowned? Why could he not have drowned? The answer is because there was a boat following him. And if he got into trouble, the boat would rescue him. That's how he could not have drowned. But if you ask the question, why didn't he drown? The answer has nothing to do with the boat. The answer has to do with he got himself into training. He worked hard. He persevered. He kept going when it was tough. And he got there. And he achieved it. So Jesus could not have sinned because he was God. But why didn't he sin? Not because he was God, but because he used, he drew close to his Father. The power of the Holy Spirit strengthened him. 
He resisted the temptation that was thrown at him as being fully man. It's a different answer. And so we can then apply that to us. You see why I say this isn't just like (laughs) four-year-olds. We can apply that to us. We can apply that to us and we can say, well, how, how can we resist temptation? Well, we can resist temptation in the same way that Jesus resisted temptation. Jesus loved God. He meditated on God's word. He prayed to his father again and again through his life. He trusted in the wisdom and righteousness of his father's will. And he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen him in everything that was called on him to do. And you know what? God has given us those exact same resources. We have exactly the same resources that Jesus has. And when we slip up and when we start, when we fail, we're rescued by God because he forgives us. He brings forgiveness to us. But we don't just rely on that forgiveness. We don't just go, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. Because God's going to forgive me. Just in the same way that a swimmer doesn't go, it's all right, I'm not going to drown. Because the boat will pick me up. So I'm not going to make any effort. You make the effort. You run for the prize. God will forgive us when we mess up. But we, we come near to God. We draw near to him. We seek him in prayer. We feed on him in his word. We trust in his wisdom and righteousness. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not so much about what would Jesus do, like you get with some of these wristbands, which can, which can tend towards legalism if we're not careful. You know, we ask, you could ask the question, well, would Jesus watch this film? Would Jesus read this book? Would Jesus go and, to that place? And you think, well, it doesn't really, that's not really the issue. The issue is, how did Jesus live? How did Jesus live? This is how he lived. And this is the example for us to copy. See, we know if we've been forgiven by God and set free, and our hearts have been purified, we know what road we're on. We know that in the end, we will see God. That's the road that we're on. And so we want to stay on that road. We don't want to just depart for it. Oh, great, that's the road we're on. We're headed for heaven. Now, let's just go off that road and go over here and get involved in all of this stuff. And then in the end, God will yank us back. All right, you're back in heaven. No, we stay on the road. We stay following Jesus. We actively draw near to God. We actively stay away from that that's impure or might lead to impurity and all that's godly. It's really practical. So, for example, youth. This isn't actually just for youth. But youth who've, who've been to New Day, young people, you've been to New Day. You've spent your time with other Christians there. You've spent every day, several times a day, worshipping God, feeding on his word, the Holy Spirit working in you, all of these things. And you will have come back, and I would think it would be almost impossible that you are not now in a better place than you were before you went. Because you will be. Because if you do those things, you'll be in a better place. You'll feel closer to God. You'll know his presence. You'll be able to hear him more easily. That's great. But that's New Day. What about now? What about here? When you're not with other Christians all the time. When you go back to school in a couple of weeks' time. And you're with friends who aren't Christians. 
Or you've got things that are going on, or TV, which you didn't have at New Day, I presume. Um, TV that you can watch, and other books that you can read, and things that you can just get involved in. And you think, well, what choices are you going to make? What are you going to spend your time? What are you going to feed yourself on? Is it, this is the question to ask. Because we're not saying, you mustn't do that, and you mustn't do that, and you mustn't do that, and you must do that. Now, that's law. That's legalism. But this is for you to ask questions of yourself, because you love God. What is going to help you draw closer to God? What is going to help you maintain your relationship with God? What is going to help keep your heart pure? So concentrate on those things. And what about the other things that might, might not help your relationship with God? Might start to harden your heart towards God. However slightly, might just start to lead you away, make your heart a bit harder, a bit less likely to be able to, to hear from God. Stay away from those things. Stay away from those things. Keep your heart pure. Paul addresses these issues with, with the Corinthians, who, who say... Because their actions don't lead to purity. Actually, for other people. Because they've realized, they've got hold of the fact that they are free. They don't have the law anymore telling them what they can and can't do. And they go, great, this is fantastic. And so they're quoting, (coughs) they're saying to Paul, who's encouraging them to live in a godly way. This is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23. This first bit's in quote. So Paul's quoting them. They're saying, everything's permissible. And in one sense it is, because the law has been dealt with. Everything's permissible. But Paul's saying, but but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible, but not everything is constructive. And then he goes on to say, no one should seek his own good, but the good of others. We can say we're under grace. Everything's permissible. It doesn't matter what we do, we're free. We're free from the restrictions of law, of legalism, of heaviness. Yeah. Not everything is helpful in making, in leading and helping you keep a pure heart. Oh, well, God's going to make my heart pure anyway. He's forgiven me and my heart's pure before him. Yeah, it is. But make every effort to keep your heart pure. What was the verse in 1 John um, chapter 3? Um, purify yourself. Just as you're pure. If you've got that hope in him. And sometimes our actions can lead, our freedom can lead to other people that they're going to lead into sin. And that was the problem with the, with the Corinthians as well. Look, let's not waste our time on things which are going to be of no value to us on that great occasion when we're finally going to see God. Let's not waste our time on things that when we come and meet face God, God face to face and see him, that we're going to look back and think, ah, oh, I'm actually ashamed of those things. Yeah, God, it's amazing. You've forgiven me. You've cleansed me. You've purified me. It's going to be a wonderful day. But we don't want to be people who are, who are looking back and, and ashamed of some of the things that we've done. God is cleansing our hearts. On that final day, they will be completely pure. On that day, we will be able to enter his gates with joy because of what Jesus has done. But let's purify ourselves as we go. Let's stay on the road. Let's draw near to God so that he draws near to us. Let's pray.